Let me say good morning and a happy new year to you all. We're starting a new series in the book of 1 Timothy this morning and for the rest of uh, this term. And if you wonder just how we go about choosing uh, what to study from the Bible in church here at St. Joseph's, and and you think maybe we just pick our favorite books of the Bible, let me disabuse you of that notion. Uh, Because if I was to be honest with you, I'd have to say that I've never been that excited about this bit of the Bible. That's maybe a terrible omission to make in church as a minister. Uh, But we do believe here at St. Joseph's that all of the Bible is God's word. And actually, as I've studied this letter over the last year, more and more I've realized just how relevant it is for us as a church now. Because it's about, essentially about how to build a healthy church or a healthy church family or household of God, as the letter puts it. And while it's easy for us to assume here at St. Joseph's uh, that we are a healthy church because things are going really well, it's quite often at those points there's, there's a real danger of becoming complacent. And so this book of the Bible acts as a warning for us. It was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a young fella that he was mentoring, and one of his closest colleagues he became. And it was designed actually to be read over Timothy's shoulder by the whole of the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering. And this church, after all, was an incredible church with incredible foundations because the Apostle Paul himself, it was the closest he had ever come to actually being kind of in position as a minister because he taught there for three years. But now it's five years later. And the health of the church is actually so shaky that as Alice comes to read the opening greeting to us in a moment, we're going to see that there is not a word of thanksgiving for the church, as there usually is at the start of Paul's letters. So let me pray, and then Alice will come and read this passage that we're going to start with this this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word now, it is our prayer that you would speak to us through it, so that we may be challenged and changed as individuals, but also as a church, that your church may be built here, and the earth may be filled with your glory. Amen. The reading is taken from the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law 
without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Alice. Well, do keep um, your Bibles open if you can. I'm sure that'll be helpful. And let's dive straight in and look at two foundational things that Timothy is charged to do in this letter. And folks, I've got to say, they are both things that most of us hate doing. The first is, Timothy is told by Paul to refute error. Verse 3, do you see? As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different or unorthodox, that can be translated as doctrine. Now, of course, Timothy must do that gently and graciously with a soft heart and humility. But the trouble is, however it is done, we hate the whole idea, don't we? Ah, a church that refutes error. It sounds so narrow and intolerant, arrogant and unloving. Yeah, I expect one of the main reasons that we bristle at this whole idea of challenging different doctrine is because the cultural air that we breathe in around us tells us that God is actually only really a projection of our own minds, our, our own ideas. And so there can't really be truth or error when it comes to God. There can only be my idea or your idea, his idea or her idea. And so if that's the case, then of course it would be arrogant of me to front up to you and say, you're wrong, or vice versa. But before we let the culture silence us, don't we need to ask, but what if there really is a God? And what if he has spoken? And what if he has said, this is what I'm like, and these things are true of me, and these things are not? Imagine with me for a minute that we get word of someone who is pitching up in Newcastle and they'd really like some help settling in the church and they'd also like to come along to the church here at St. Joseph's. And so you and I go along to pick them up from the airport. And we've never met this person. But let's, let's, call him, let's give them a name, Cedric. Okay? We've never met Cedric. So we're trying to figure out what are they like? And, and you think that Cedric's going to be tall and thin, maybe, you know, well, like myself. Uh, it's starting to thin a little bit on top in terms of their, their hair. I think, though, that he's going to be short and plump, but with a full mop of hair, like I wish I had. At this stage, in terms of our discussion, there's no such thing as truth and error, is there? It'd be utterly ridiculous, wouldn't we, for me to say, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're wrong. He can't possibly be tall and thin. 
because neither of us knows. But then, at the airport, well, we do what all good chauffeurs should do at the airport, and we, we put up a, we, a little sign we've made saying Cedric, and, and Cedric steps out of the crowd and introduces himself to us. Well, it's no longer your guess versus my guess, is it? Because there are now things that we know about Cedric as he's standing there right in front of us. And you know what? You were right. He's tall and thin. And so we bring him back to church and people ask, which one's Cedric? And I say, the short, plump one. Now, if you were to correct me at that point, would that be arrogant? No. Because you're simply saying that Cedric isn't just some idea that we've dreamed up on the way to the airport. He's real. And if I went on saying, yes, but I really like to think of Cedric as being short and plump. That would be arrogant, wouldn't it? And a little weird, to be honest. (laughs) But when it comes to God, that is often what we do. You see, we have not been left to ourselves to speculate about God. No, God has stepped into this world and he's made himself known. (laughs) Isn't that what we just celebrated at Christmas? And so look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, he introduces himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul speaks by command of God. He he says, these are not my ideas. They've been given to me by God. It's a word from him. Or further down the page in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The gospel is not something that Paul has made up. It is good news God has given him. Through Christ, God has spoken. And he said, this is what I'm like. And this is how you come to know me. And this is how you can live your best life now with me. But the false teachers in Ephesus have gone back to speculating as though God has not spoken at all. Do you see in verse 4, they devote themselves. They really give themselves over to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't know what exactly they were into, what, what they were doing. There's evidence from Jewish literature that one of the things that people were doing at this time was was trying to work out from Old Testament genealogies. They were fascinated by them, and they are fascinating if you look at them. But they were trying to work out just whether they were related to Abraham or not, the forefather of their faith. And if you were related to Abraham, then that was what made you truly spiritual, like cut above the rest. And later on in this letter, Paul says that they also thought it was unspiritual to eat certain types of food or, or to get married. So what we've got going on, I think, here is something like, they're saying, yeah, the gospel's all well and good, but you need to listen to us about how to take things on to the next level. Uh, Do this, do that, and then you can be part of our spiritual elite. That's what they were creating. While we may not know exactly what they're teaching, we can see how their teaching has come about, verse 6. They've wandered away. They've wandered away from the gospel, from God's revealed truth, from sound or healthy doctrine, as verse 11 puts it. Now you might say, oh, it's just doctrine. I mean, nobody really cares about 
doctrine these days, Ken. I mean, what matters is people's relationship with God, that they're sincere. Surely we can be a little bit muddled, agree to disagree about our theology, just so long as we love the Lord. Well, let's just imagine that I invite Cedric round for a meal. And Cedric tells me that he's a vegetarian. And so what do I do? I slap on his plate in front of him the biggest pork chop I can find. And Cedric, hold on. I told you I was a vegetarian. Cedric, that's just doctrine. (laughs) Come on, tuck in, tuck in. Go for it. Don't let that hold you back. How would Cedric feel? You see, it's not just doctrine. The fact that I don't take the truth he has told me about himself seriously shows that I don't take him seriously. Oh, I love God, people say. I'm just not that interested in all that he has said about how I can know him and what he's like, how I can live for him. I'm much more interested in genealogies or finding him in beautiful buildings or in nature, or in the brilliance of people and their wonderful ideas, or even the kind of detailed mechanics of how we actually do church when church hasn't necessarily, the Bible isn't necessarily clear about that kind of thing. How do we think that God makes, how do we think that makes God feel? The God who said, this is who I am. You see, when I wander away from what he says, It shows that I'm not really interested in him at all. I I don't really love him. And when the leaders in a church do that, uh, as let's not fail to notice that these false teachers, they weren't out there. They were in here, in the church, in positions of influence. There were people like us. Then what happens? Well, the congregation is really unsettled about the truth. And more than that, they become unbelievably distracted about the mission God has given them. Look at verse 4 again. Charge certain persons, Paul says, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. To be a steward is to be entrusted with something valuable on behalf of someone else. So what is this stewardship that God has given his church that is by faith? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the church was meant to be people growing in life with God through the gospel and then passing that life on to the world. That was the purpose God has given them. But instead, here in Ephesus, you've got people so busy, caught up debating interesting controversies, majoring in minors, in vain discussion, as verse 6 puts it. The church has turned in on itself and lost its way. If there's no truth from God, there will be no life with God to go out to the world about God. Isn't that the story of the church in the West? No truth, no life, no mission. 
And that is why Paul urges Timothy to refute error. Nip it in the bud. Not because he's picky and narrow-minded. Not, not because he, 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 he's determined to be right and win an argument. No. Do you see his motive in verse 5? The aim of our charge is love. Love the issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's very striking, isn't it? It's really striking because we tend to think, oh, come on, don't go around being pernickety about theology, correcting people about their doctrine. Just let love prevail. But Paul says, no, the very reason you've got to refute error is so that love will prevail. So that people know who God is and, and what his love for them looks like. And what our love for one another should look like. Folks, perhaps we can think of a friend who we know who is wandering away from what God has revealed about himself in Christ in his word. From what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years. And they're now in danger of being blown around by all kinds of controversies and speculations. So they lose their faith. Will we just be content to fold our arms and let them go that way? Or will we say, no? No, it matters what you believe. And I love you. And God loves you way too much for me not to tell you the truth. But folks, I suspect that we're not really going to do that unless we also do the second thing that Paul encourages Timothy to do here. And that is, be honest about sin. We've got to be honest about sin. Read on with me in verse 7. As we see the false teachers wanted, they desired to be teachers of the law. In other words, the law in, in God's Old Testament. But it seems from how Paul goes on in verse 8 that they were misusing the law or they were forgetting what and who it was for. And so verse 8 says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or properly. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And when he says, the law is not laid down for the just, it's because people are saying, well, the law is actually for good people like us. We, we love the law. Uh, we, we, think it's, we think it's great. We're really into it. And, and, and that's one of the things that shows just how spiritual we are. Uh, and we use it to, so that we can feel good about ourselves. But their lives were not changed by the reading of God's word. There was no sign of a work of God in them. The fruit of all their study and their discussions was just this controversy and speculation, as well as now we find self-justification. And before you think I'm pointing the finger here, I've got to say I've been really challenged by this and found a finger pointing very firmly back at myself. Because I love the Bible. And I know many of you here love the Bible too. And maybe like me, you read it every morning in your devotions. And you'll listen to sermons on podcasts and you'll read good Christian books through the week too. And we say we love the law. We love it when people teach us the Bible. But then our life isn't changed by it. 
there is not really much sign of a work of God in our lives. Which means we can't be reading it right. Because the right way to read the law is to see that the law is for lawbreakers. Isn't that what verse 9 says? The law is not laid down for the just, to those who want to feel good about themselves, but for the lawless and the disobedient. I mean, that's what all laws are for, isn't it? Laws are made for those things where we are inclined to break the law. I think about the speed limit. When I drive along a road and I see one of those signs at the side of the road flash at me. It is not going, well done, you are doing so well. Have some fireworks and some sparkle. No, it is telling me that I'm being a lawbreaker. I'm, I'm being lawless and disobedient. And God's Old Testament laws show us that, that we were created to reflect God's character. So that in the law, we encounter a God who is pure and who calls his people to be pure too. A God who is faithful and who calls his people to faithfulness in any and every situation. A God who forgives and who calls his people to forgive as he has forgiven us. A God who cares for the poor and who therefore also calls his people to walk in his footsteps and welcome the outcast and the stranger, the orphan and the widow. And if we walk away from reading the law thinking, well, that just goes to show that I'm one of the good guys. That we're seriously deluded. Or as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The only honest response to reading the Bible is... And to see God's character there is to to say, that's not me. That is not me. That's how Paul himself read it. If we look on to our passage from next weekend, spoiler alert, verse 15. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you hear that? Literally there it's I'm the worst present tense Paul is saying it's not just them it's it's me it's us it's all of us you see read God's law and it shows you things about yourself you do not want to see and it therefore flattens our self-righteousness and our pride it humbles us and brings us to our knees but gloriously it does not leave us there It confronts us with our sin in order to lead us to our Savior. You read the Bible, you're you're maybe reading it in your quiet time and you're thinking, this is not me, but it sends you, it drives you to Christ. It sends me to cling on to him with renewed relief because I know that Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law for me and that he has paid for every one of my sins. In him, I'm now restored to God. And now Christ helps me to go the way of the law, to live with him and like him. Do you see what it means to be a church that is honest about sin? 
when the doctor delivers the diagnosis to the patient. It's not to make them feel bad and despair. It's to help them realize how sick they are and that their only hope is to take the medicine. And Christianity is not spirituality for good people. It is about what God has done through Christ to save sinners, sick people who are dying without him. And if we're the sort of church that doesn't get real, isn't honest about sin, then we'll stop taking the medicine of Christ, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, and we will die. And we start to think that sin is the really obvious stuff that we read about in the newspaper headlines. And we'll sit here in church during the confession prayer and we'll think that we really haven't got that much to confess ourselves. And after a time, we'll start to think that Jesus is like one of those life jackets that you have under your seat on an airplane, which is kind of okay and reassuring to have in the unlikely event of an accident, but it's not worth taking that much notice of. Because day to day, we don't really need a saviour. And Christ will grow less and less precious to us. And we won't see much of a work of God in our souls. And our souls will shrivel up. And the church will die. Now perhaps you're sitting here this morning thinking, oh goodness, this is dreadful. Happy New Year. I really don't want to be a church that is honest about sin. Well, Just think about this. Imagine you're part of a church where everybody pretends that they're sorted, where we all go around making out that we're fine. We never share our struggles, our temptations, or our failures. Even in the relatively safe confines of our small groups or our friendship circles. Isn't that what people think about the church? That the church is full of people who think about themselves as better than everyone else or pretend that they are? Isn't that why I keep meeting people who say to me, oh, I could never really be a Christian, I'm not good enough? How have we got there? Somewhere along the line, the church in this country, just like these false teachers in Ephesus, have turned Christianity into a spirituality for good people. And therefore, we're a little bit embarrassed about sin to ever talk about it. So we think if we don't, if we just kind of push it to the margins, then we will make the church much more attractive to people out there in the world. But the truth is, we've only made it uglier. Because a people, because a group of self-righteous people who think they are good is a horrible group to be a part of. And it's an incredibly difficult group to break into and join. Because one of the ways that we justify ourselves is by pointing out how others are worse sinners than we are. That it's only really the bad people out there who are the sinners. But a church that is honest about sin, where sin is called out and confronted, 
is not judgmental, it's humble. Because how can we be judgmental and point the finger at others when we're all in the same boat? And a church that is honest about sin is real. And so we don't have to pretend with one another and wear masks and, and, and be afraid of what other people might think about if we let the mask slip and let people in. We can be honest too because we're all messed up. We all live messed up lives. And a church that is honest about sin is not exclusive. It welcomes everybody because Christ did not come for an elite group of people. He came to save sinners, all sinners. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, he came for you. And so a church that is real about sin will reach out to the world because when we know we need saving then Christ our saviour will be so so precious to us that we will not just cling on to him ourselves but we will take him out and we will commend him as the medicine that a desperately diseased and dying world needs and in 2022 we will make that our top priority our number one New Year's resolution. Let's pray that that is what we'll be like as a church. Yeah, let's take a moment to pray now. Um, it'd be great just to pray as the Spirit leads you. Um, uh, what's, what the Spirit's put on your heart as I've been speaking from His Word just now. Let's take a moment of silence to do that by ourselves. Oh Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.